Okay, order. Good afternoon, members. Welcome you to this afternoon's meeting of the Northern Ireland Assembly Public Accounts Committee. Uh, and I will just confirm that we are now in public session. Uh, and we have a quorum. And so we'll now proceed to conduct today's business. Members, I need to tell you that mobile phones must be set to airplane mode or turned off. It's not sufficient to put mobiles on silent mode as they continue to interfere with the Assembly recording. The session has been recorded in video and audio and can be uh, accessed via live online streaming either on the Northern Ireland Assembly website or Democracy Live. Uh, any apologies this afternoon? No. Agenda item two then is the minutes of the 3rd of June, uh, pages 9 to 14. Are members content that I sign these as being accurate? Thank you. Um, declarations of interest at meetings, members are required to re register a relevant financial or other interest in register of members' interest. Does any member have any interest they wish to declare this afternoon? Thank you. Um, matters arising, I'm not aware of any. Agenda item five then, correspondence. There aren't any matters to be addressed in correspondence. So members, with your permission now, we will go into closed session for this uh, agenda item and then go back into open session for items 7, 8 and 9. Can we please bring in Mr Stuart Stevenson of the TOA. Uh, the witnesses today appearing for us in person uh, will be taken between agenda items to wipe down the table and prepare the next session in accordance with COVID regulations. So therefore there will have to be a necessity of short break in between sessions. Great. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber. Uh, order. At this stage, I'd like to um, welcome Mr. Brennan, uh, the Permanent Secretary and Accounting Officer for the Department of the Economy, Mr. Richard Rogers, Head of Energy Group, and Mr. Trevor McBride, Principal Officer, Renewable Electricity, in the meeting to brief the committee on their analysis of the KPMG report. Uh, also in attendance this afternoon, we're joined by Mr. Cairn Donnelly, CB, Comptroller and Auditor General of the Northern Ireland Audit Office, Mr. Stuart Stevenson, Treasury Officer uh, of Accounts, Department of Finance, who's joining the meeting remotely. Members in your pack are witness biographies 27-28, uh, Northern Ireland Audit Office, Generating Electricity and Renewable Energy, pages 29 to 108 of your pack. The KPMG, An Economic Review of Small-Scale Wind, pages 109 of your pack. Um, correspondence dated the 8th of June from Mike Brennan, uh, including the analysis of KPMG report, pages 157 to 171 of your pack. And the Northern Ireland Audit Office, key points from KPMG analysis at pages 172 of your pack. Correspondence dated the 14th of April in your table pack from Mr. Brennan regarding information requested in the Department's evidence session on the 18th of March 2021. Mr. Brennan, uh, I would welcome you to the meeting and at this stage invite you to make an opening statement and then members will have comment and question. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Um, just a very brief introduction from me. Um, obviously, following our, our last session with your committee on the, the 18th of March, there um, has been a lot of work, a lot of analysis undertaken. Um, as I say, on the 18th of March, we discussed at length the, the KPMG report. Um, and uh, so lots of analysis undertaken since then to try and determine um, how robust that report was and the, the, 
uh, Narrow Assurance and Risk Management Group, which constitutes the Department, the Utility Regulator and Ofgem, have been looking at that in detail, and we have provided you with a summary assessment of that piece of work. Um, in addition to the KPMG work, um, you will see that the, 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 the Risk Management Group, the Assurance and Risk Management Group, have also been doing some sort of benchmarking exercise as well, um, and Trevor, Richard and myself will hopefully take you through some of the key issues there. Okay. Mr. McBride, anything you want to add? We moved questions. No, I don't think so. No. Okay. Uh, many members want to ask questions of Mr. Brennan and Mr. Rogers, Mr. McBriar. Any questions? Mr. Mr. Muir. Um, thank you, Chair, and thanks for coming along here today, person. So it's uh, useful. Um, I note all your responses to the KPMG report, and I read over that last night. Do you not think this highlights maybe a very heavy reliance upon the industry? And there's probably an over level of trust in terms of the figures that they provide, because if at the outset of this scheme there was a requirement for them to provide the information which you have been unable to get, so I don't think that would have been able to engender a lot more confidence and public trust in the scheme. Uh, it's a delicate line to drive here. I, I know the point you're making, and it is a very, very valid one in terms of seeking complete transparency to give comfort, but at the same time, um, these are commercial contracts, um, and there is a necessity to protect, you know, the commercial viability of, of the companies and their contracts that they have. So, I, I do take reassurance from uh, the KPMG and the steering group findings in terms of the sample work that they did do. Um, so, obviously, they didn't get into you know detailed invoice scrutiny for every single turbine, but the sampling that they did do does give a higher degree of assurance. But yes, I, I understand the point you're making, and. You know, it's maybe something that we look forward to. You know, as we look forward to future schemes, that in terms of you know the obligations that we impose on the companies in terms of the data that they would provide to the utility regulator, Ofgem, and ourselves, we should have a greater degree of transparency than we do under this current scheme. Sir Richard or Trevor, uh, that's the fair point. Yeah. Yeah, it's just I understand that commercial element. Um, I just don't know whether I'm sitting here fully assured that there's a full acceptance of the need to actually get access to that information. Um, and any many examples where government this is not grant funding, it's separate, okay, but in many other examples where government are doing grant funding, there is a requirement to have access to that commercial information and that information is provided because there's a financial incentive to provide it. And also it's a government body which is being provided to you. So it's under a clear basis upon which that information is given. Um, and there's obviously clear contractual and legal terms upon the, inf the information to be provided. So, uh, when I'm reading through um, your analysis of this and uh, throughout it, there's a feeling that the KPMG re uh, report elements of it are, are reasonable. Um, but also, that is based upon the fact that we haven't you haven't had sight of a lot of that information, and I just don't know how it's fair to make that judgment without having full sight of that information, if that makes sense? No, it, do, it does make sense. And I say all we, all we can try to do is increase the degrees of transparency and scrutiny that we have. Now, obviously, you know, this has significant implications because you know, it, it's a UK-wide UK um, scheme, um, and the, the, the requirements are, are to divulge are UK-wide. But certainly, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I would like to think that as we develop successor schemes, we can impose as a condition of drawing down funding 
um, that there are requirements that they divulge information to either off-gem, utility regular, ourselves, that give us greater insight going forward? I think that's important. Just one last question, Chair. Um, page eight uh, on table two, it outlines the different um, bodies and, and sort of information sources, maybe you would put, put it that way, and the figures that they came up with. Those KPMG, um, DECC, which is now BES, uh, DETI, which is now DFE, Professor Hughes, and the Northern Ireland Audit Office. So there's um, there's five there. Um, just in relation to the analysis. From Professor Hughes, um, I'm doing a bit more of a research myself. Um, I don't know. I would put as much store in terms of the figures uh, that he provides compared to the other providers, uh, because I'm also conscious of his own um, views mm. in relation to renewable energy. And I think it's important that we um, take that into account in terms of that being an authoritative information source. And just be interested in yourselves in terms of your views around that particular. Sort of viewpoint and source that came from Professor Hughes. Well, I, I think you will have seen the letter from uh, Russell Smith, the senior partner in KPMG, yes. where he addresses the way in which Professor Hughes uh, analysed the scheme, um, and I think uh, we would probably share most of those concerns. I suppose, in summary, um, Professor Hughes wasn't comparing like with like in terms of Northern Ireland against GB for a start, in terms of you know. He, our small-scale uh, definition of turbine, I think, was 250 kilowatt hours, whereas he was looking at a larger um, turbine. There's a whole raft of issues, um, and so on the whole, I think I probably would share some of the concerns flagged up in that letter from KPMG about the way in which uh, Professor Hughes um, benchmarked his, his analysis um, and the fact that he, he delivered recommendations. That probably weren't based on as firm an evidence base as we would like to have seen, and you know, to produce criticisms of of, of government policy based on um, presumptions on like for like comparison, I do find concerning. Yeah, because I'm also aware that some of the information was garnered from accounts companies' house. Yep. And you know, anyone would know that that is not a snapshot of a business. You and know. also, it doesn't give you the degree of detail that you would need. To, to see, for example, on OPEX and CAPEX and things like that. Oh. I should just point out at this stage that we did offer KPMG uh, an opportunity to come in front of the committee to clarify uh, the, the, their position and, uh, and address the concerns that were set out in the letter. That opportunity was not taken up. Sorry. Okay, Chair, I think yeah, that's an important point. Uh, it's just um, one last point. Um, the, the issue, because this. This, your response in the KPMG report and the other data around it, to me, highlights one wider issue. And I think it's, this is the role of the Public Accounts Committee to highlight these issues and to seek redress around it. Is that there's probably two issues that energy policy is extremely complex, and I think that we've we've all hopefully got an understanding of that by now. Okay. Another one is because of the level of complexity. And Northern Ireland is a great country. I love it so much, but we're very very small in the great scheme of things. We've got a population of 1.8 million, so we have a very complex policy area, but we have a very small population. And having the level of technical knowledge around being able to implement energy policy is a challenge there. It's a challenge in so many other policy areas across Northern Ireland. Sometimes we don't fully acknowledge that. Um, and so as a result, there is an over-reliance upon the industry, certain people within the industry, and uh, certain consultants and all the rest of it for advice. And I think we're going to have to take learnings 
because from this and from previous issues, but how do you address that? Because if we're going to conclude this inquiry, I'm not walking away from this inquiry with a great level of confidence that we're addressing that fundamental issue, which is the the uh, and I do take comfort from the real efforts the department have made to try to increase that level of knowledge around a very complex area, and I thank you for that. But the issue in terms of the over reliance uh, upon the industry and that level of trust, because um, it only takes one or two actions to erode that trust, and as a result, it's government that feels the consequences of that. So I don't know whether you have anything more to say about that, but I think this is a fundamental issue. Okay, I'll, I'll just two very quick high-level observations, and maybe bring in Richard. So the first one is in relation to energy strategy going forward. Obviously, the department has now got its energy strategy out to consultation, and it, it seems to have landed warmly with all key stakeholders. And part of the reason for that, I think, is it's. It's not really just a DFE energy, energy strategy anymore. It's not even just an NICS department, and the departments now are more joined up than was ever the case in energy policy before. But we have you know, external panels of experts, and we've got external stakeholders. So it's a shared energy strategy going forward. But there is a concern there, and you've touched on it, which is you know, Northern Ireland is a small place to construct energy policy in a devolved context. And if you look at Richard and his team, I think you have what, maybe 100, 150 staff in your team. And yet you look at energy policy at a UK level administered by BEZ, where they probably have thousands taking it forward. And yet in many ways, energy policy in Northern Ireland is much more complex. You know, for example, in terms of integration of the single electricity market, the fact that some is reserved and some is devolved. So it's an incredibly complex policy environment to look after. So I, I, I do worry at times about um, the you know, there needs to be an awareness that DFE cannot own energy strategy going forward in isolation. Everyone has to, all the key stakeholders have to buy into it, but even then there has to be a recognition that sometimes some of the issues are just too big to be dealt with at a, at a devolved level, and they should be looked at at a reserve level. And sure, Richard, maybe. Um, I, I would agree with the remarks you made. I mean, the, we are small, and we have to learn from what is happening elsewhere across the islands as a whole, but it is also an opportunity. Um, we have to be able to work and bring the network monopolies, whether it's NIE, SUNY or the gas companies, to account, and that's the job that the utility regulator does under, under the regulations and under the statute. But it provides the opportunity, and what, they, what we have achieved in renewable electricity in getting to the 49% um, means that it has been achieved because the electricity company has, is doing things that aren't being done elsewhere better than has been done across the rest of the UK, and therefore we have the opportunity to demonstrate we can do stuff and we can test stuff. And so, for example, recently the, production, the first production of green hydrogen across the islands through the electrolyzer from renewable, from what otherwise would have been curtailed renewable wind, is an exciting step forward. But the point you make is really, is really well made. We are now firmly engaged with BEZ in terms of the development of policy, you know, and, and they're looking to us because of the things that we're achieving, so it's a good two-way conversation. Thank you, Chair. And I think this is highlighted in other reports we've done about capacity and capability of civil service. But that relationship with what you would describe, Chair, as the imperial civil service, you know, that, that it's about that relationship in terms of skills. And I think it's important to issue to highlight. It would, because that's what it is, Mr. <laughs> um, Mr. Harvey. Um, thank you very much, Chair. Just in terms of costs, I was just looking at and thinking, um, and insurance <coughs> costs. Would you say the figure quoted has turned out to be accurate, or what? These are the costs quoted for the OPEX yeah. estimates. Um, 
they seem reasonable to us. Um, three sets of costs. There was the um, rates, insurance, and maintenance. So there's no reason to question it. I think, Trevor, a number of sources were looked at when you, the benchmarking was being done. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's difficult to actually actually verify the costs because the, uh, the stations vary in, in many ways, you know, in size and where they are and so forth. Uh, but I suppose the thing is the the estimate that was provided to us by KPMG was based on actual costs, you know, that was provided to them by uh, 134 different stations. So, from my perspective, you know, it seems like a like a reasonable sort of representation of the uh, of the sector. Okay. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Thank okay. You, Thank you, Mr. Beggs. You, you said that, that you believe the costs are a reasonable representation of the sector. I, I don't know. Um, were, were they randomly selected? We're told that, or not, we were told that um, some provided figures for all their turbines, some provided some information, and some provided none. So how do you know it's reasonable or not? Would it not have been better if there were some mechanism of having random information gathered independently? Well, you know, the, the cost identified for insurance, you know, at £2,900 by KPMG, you know, and some, for some turbines it will be higher, for other turbines it will be lower. Um, all we can really do what is... What was the average for the average size of turbine? I don't know what the average was. 225 kilowatts. Yeah, I'm, I'm what, you're telling us 3000 could be... Uh, a higher cost or a lower cost? Is that an average cost? It is for the one, for the information identified as part of the sampling exercise. So, uh, and did, did you try to do any independent collaboration or, or confirmation of that? I mean, there are turbines on the public estate. Uh, I know, for instance, Antrim Hospital has a turbine. I don't know what size it is, but have you attempt, attempted to find out independently what insurance costs might be? I'm not aware that the steering group did do that. Okay. In terms... Um, obviously, if, if uh, the owner of the land um, owned the turbine, there's no rental cost. Um, I know agricultural costs, maybe three or four hundred. I mean, Mr. Beggs, you you seem you seem, uh, seem to be losing you, and you're dropping in. Cost on an annual... Mr. Beggs, yes, Mr. Beggs, we we seem to be losing you. In fact, we've lost you at the moment, and we're you're, you're dropping in and out. So there's no flow to to your questions. In fact, those of us old enough to remember, you're doing a very good impersonation of Norman Collier. Uh, so could I ask you to re-ask the question, if you don't mind? <laughs> well, Oh, I'm trying to ascertain. I'll come back in again. Okay, that's fine. Um, so whilst Mr. Begg, Mr. Beggs tries to re-establish the linkage, um, uh, any other member want to ask a question, Mr. O'Toole? Thank you, Chair. Um, it's quite a muddy situation for us in the nicest possible way. Um, we have the audit office saying one thing, independent consultants on behalf of the trade body saying another, and 
yourselves largely endorsing what the trade body is saying by their consultants um, in saying that you think your internal um, analysis of the KPMG report is that you think the assumptions in the KPMG report are broadly defensible or reasonable is it, do you, implicitly in that are you disagreeing with um, uh, the findings or some of the key findings of the uh, audit office? No, um, we're looking at different da data sets. You know, so we're looking at different information. So on the point on uh, rate of return, I think since our last session on the 18th of March, we've had some clarification as to how the audit office calculated its rates of return, for example. Um, and I think, uh, Trevor, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was based on um, 10 turbines, but the costs of one turbine were focused on. Okay. So if you look at that one, one specific turbine, you will come up with, a, with um, an assessment of what a rate of return is. The KPMG work um, and you know, looked at something different, looked at a wider sample and came up with different figures. But there are always assumptions made in how you calculate a rate of return. So for example, if you looked at the, the, the KPMG report, you know, there were I think about 25 or 30 turbines were excluded on the CapEx side because their CapEx costs, they were new turbines. Okay, so the capex cost of buying a new turbine was higher. And if you, hire, if you, if you build in higher capex costs for those turbines, then you actually start to reduce the rate of return. So there were adjustments made on, for example, the KPMG calculations, their methodology, to try and come up with a reasonable assessment of what a rate of return would be. And the audit office have done the same. But you say they're looking at different uh, data sets. And this goes to the point that was made earlier. Until, unless you have access to 100% of, of, of the data on, on the OPEX and the CAPEX side and the invoices, you're not going to get the position where both of us agree on an exact number. Did you want to come in there? No, that was exactly the, point, the final point, yeah. But in saying that, you, that, that, that um, the two major um, actors, I don't know whether to call them antagonists, uh, the NIAO and KPMG are looking <coughs> differently, you are. Um, uh, what you're saying is you're you're not disagreeing with some of the major findings that the audit office have made or recommendations, uh, are, but presumably you don't completely stand over everything they've said and everything um, in terms of um, questions they've raised about the efficacy of the NIRO scheme. No, I, I can understand exactly how the audit office calculated their rate of return, okay, and at the same time I can understand exactly how KPMG calculated their rate of return. All I'm saying is that. The additional work done by the Assurance and Risk Committee group, okay, that I referred to earlier, when they looked at it and looked at the benchmarking exercise, um, they were broadly in the same place as KPMG. That's not saying that the audit office wouldn't be in the same place if we'd given them the same data set. And just to, just to add, this plays to the recommendation six that we've accepted in the audit office report that we will uh, assess the rate of return across the scheme. It's going to be very challenging, back to the point that was made earlier when we we, we don't have a, a legal right to access all the individual pieces of data and information. So, though you don't, uh, though you, you can't endorse the the the, met, the exact methodology because there is a an honest disagreement over uh, over data sets being used and assumptions being relied upon. You don't fundamentally disagree with the recommendations in the audit office report. No, because as Richard said, looking forward, we want to get to a place where we can all agree that there's complete transparency 
on cost data and therefore clear view on what a rate of return, an appropriate rate of return should be. You, you said, Mike, in your previous answer that there, some of the issues in relation to energy policy were too big. Mm -hmm. Do you mean too big for the Northern Ireland Civil Service to, obviously you've been through, um, well not you specifically, but the, the, the entire Northern Ireland Civil Service and specifically what was Daddy, if you've been through the RHI experience, is that a, are you alluding to that experience? Do you think it's, is it uh, simply, are some of the questions simply too big in terms of our size and the civil service capacity? Yeah, what I'm saying is that if you look at the, the energy agenda that lies ahead in terms of growing the green economy and decarbonisation, some of, some of the, the policy initiatives that you might want to take forward there are so big and complex, I'm not sure that they can be delivered um, efficiently at a Northern Ireland level. Um, but then again, this, this, we're looking at the renewables obligation here, which was a UK-wide initiative. You know, so, but I think there are probably issues that um, we would struggle to operate solely on the basis of um, Northern Ireland Civil Service taking forward ma major policy interventions if they're complex in the energy space. But as you say, this wasn't, in a sense, the decision here, this wasn't, scheme wasn't really designed in Northern Ireland. It was, broadly speaking, a lift and lay from Whitehall, yeah. but with decisions made at particular points to diverge and diverge in a way that was, for better or worse, advantageous perhaps to the, to the small-scale sector it, relative to GB. The exact quantum is, is obviously debated, but in a sense, this experience wasn't about not having the capacity or the data set to, to design a, a local scheme. It was about it, you know, lifting, the, the experience of lifting and laying it or adapting it from my toll. Yeah, the, the complications arose. So obviously, when decisions are taken in London to um, change the policy, so for example, the introduction, introduction of FIT, for example, that mm. has uh, impacts in Northern Ireland, then policy in Northern Ireland has to react to that in a way that suits whatever the industry requirements are and the sector's requirements are mm. in Northern Ireland. So steady as it was and then at that time had to react to developments at a UK-wide level in terms of change in policy. Here's one final question here. Just on the, one of the questions raised by the Audit Office report is about the fact that uh, the cost of Naira, the cost of Naira was largely, and correct me if I'm, this is obviously a broad statement, largely borne back, but it was spread throughout Britain basically, and it was, and because of that, I guess, pooling exercise, it was, um, obviously it wasn't, it didn't come out of, um, out of spending, it wasn't. It, it wasn't either current. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't public money. It, it was public money, but it was consumer money. I suppose it was, it was on, on on bills. Is that? I mean, so there is a question about whether whether that's value for money, but, but value for money writ large, as in value for money for people who are paying tax bills in Leicestershire or or Angus. Is that as a accounting officer for DFE? Is that something? When you're looking at a value for money, is that something that you look at as well, as in the overall value for money, even if, it, if the cost is spread to, to consumers in Britain? Is that a, relevant to you in terms of being an accounting officer in the way that you know, managing public money that comes from the block grant is relevant? I, I don't know if that question makes sense. Well, it does. So uh, any assessment of value for money um, will take into consideration the wider social costs and benefits that accrue from that. Right. So, for example, um, the, the the needs, for example, in the Northern Ireland context, whether it be rural diversification or the fact that we have greater preponderance of wind, all those things feature yeah. into how Northern Ireland might benefit from it. But the actual implications in the wider GB context would be a consideration in the 
in that decision-making process. But the, the bottom line in a sort of value-for-money context is, as Richard's point earlier, it's got Northern Ireland to a position where we are at, what, 49 per cent of electricity generated comes from wind locally. Okay, and in terms of the cost to the consumer, I think this is the figure is something like one p per turbine over 20 years. That's the figure that always jumps out at me to get to that 49% of electricity generated here being renewable. And just 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 a just a, a couple of important points. There's two sides to this obligation. The the UK government decided to put less of an obligation on Northern Ireland electricity suppliers to reflect the fuel poverty position relative to GB because we. Had to pay more for our fuel here, so that was a UK-wide policy decision. The second aspect of that is we have more wind in Northern Ireland than they have in the south of England, so mm. it's natural that we should be producing more wind energy relative to the size of, of the south of England. And that was the way this, right. the okay. UK-wide policy was designed. Okay, thank you. Um, no other members seeing they want to ask questions, and Mr. Beggs has been unable to rejoin the meeting. Mr. Donnelly, have you any quest comments or questions? Uh, no, just welcome a couple of points made. Okay. Uh, the accounting officer basically going forward that we're, we're have a, a, not just a Department of Economy policy, but a civil service wide. And also the, that commitment uh, in any new schemes that we, uh, at the design stage, uh, we get access into cost and information. I think that's the key point. Um, when we're working on limited information on cost, um, you know, the, the, it's very hard to bolt the thing down, and um, you know, it'll depend on what assumptions are made. So uh, I think there's certainly learning for for any future future schemes. Okay, uh, Mr. Stevenson, any comment you want to make at this stage? Nothing further from my perspective, Chair. Thank you. Okay, um, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Mr. McBride, thank you very much for attending. I have a very brief question, Chip. I will, and it will be very brief. Well, it will. It will I no no monologues, brief questions. I promise it will not be very. I'll simply preface it by saying some of us are hoping to go to Donegal this summer. What will be the status of the biogas plant in Donegal when we, if we encounter it? Is it uh, still operating and still, still burning chicken waste from Northern Ireland? Okay. <clears throat> that's all I want to thank you. Take a note of that. That's the history making moment. What's that? <laughs> history making there moment. There is a trail to go to the um, I can't wait to go and see the. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. And so, members, again, we'll have to take uh, a short break. Uh, we will remain in open session for agenda item 8 to consider the delays in ministerial directions. Mr. Brennan uh, will remain at the table and will be joined by Mr. Colin Woods, Director of Corporate Governance, uh, and will join to discuss the delay in ministerial directions. Uh, when we move to agenda item eight in just a few moments' time. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. Okay, order. Okay, members, we move then to agenda item eight, delays in ministerial directions. Mr. Mike Brennan, the accounting officer, Department of the Economy, Mr. Colin Woods, Director of Corporate Governance, have now joined the meeting. And uh, members, I welcome Mr. Brennan uh, and Mr. Woods to the meeting, and uh, we're delighted to have with us again for the continuation of the meeting, Mr. Donnelly, the Controller and Auditor General, and Mr. Stuart Stevenson. Uh, of the Officer of Accounts at the Department of Finance. <coughs> the updated uh, list of ministerial directions is pages 176 to 17, sorry, 174 to 176 of your pack, and the list is coded green, amber, and red, showing ministerial directions completed, potentially delayed, and delayed. Uh, Mr. Brennan, I invite you to make an opening statement, and then, of course, then we'll ask the uh, committee for any comment or question. Okay, thank you, Chair. Um, just a few initial comments to set the context. Um, 15, 15 ministerial directions from the department in, in the space of a year is completely and utterly unprecedented. As you know, there were four ministerial directions in the, the previous 11 years combined. Um, so we found ourselves over the last last year or so in, in just incredibly difficult waters. Um, all. You, the context around the pandemic and trying to get all our staff working from home created an environment of, of confusion and chaos. The clear political requirement was to support as many businesses in Northern Ireland as possible, as quickly as possible. And that put a lot of pressure on DFE staff to try and construct schemes at very short notice and get them operationalised. Um, so as I say, there were 15 directions in the last financial year, 14 of them related to COVID interventions, and one the other was in relation to the public service obligation to keep the city of Derry airport going. Um, I have to say and apologise for the fact that um, we didn't get the ministerial directions. In most, most cases, we did get them to uh, the CNIG in a reasonable period of time, but in some cases, <coughs> we did not. Um, and that to be honest, I'm sorry, it's just a reflection of the chaos that we find ourselves in. 
Um, I know two in particular, the bed and breakfast scheme and uh, the CRBSS um, scheme, uh, the delays there are 55 days and 87 days were, were unacceptable. Um, Colin has now, in his corporate governance role, um, put in place mechanisms to centralise the, the ministerial direction process in the department. And uh, since that's happened, we've had three ministerial directions, I think, in this year so far. And the average time it's taken to get those to the CNAG was nine days on average. Okay, but as I, you know, I can just apologise that you know, in some cases, there on those 15, there were delays. It was down to the fact that, particularly around the November 2020 time, we were. It was a state of chaos because. The executive, on real-time basis, was changing information that we were giving to them. So, for example, we would construct the scheme, the paper would go into the executive, discussions would happen in the executive, and then we would find ourselves in a completely different position at the end of the executive meeting. We also had complications around um, difficult to understand how changes in the health regulations would impact on how we might take a scheme forward. So, for example, we didn't know what sectors of the economy were going to be closed down until the executive informed a view on health regulations. So then we had to go back and revisit our paper. So it was quite chaotic. And as I say, that particular one week in particular in November, where a small group of staff in a particular division were actually running a number of these grant schemes at the same time. So it was difficult to understand what the executive requirement was. And as I say, some of the discussions were at the political level. So one of, one of the there was an incorrect notification went to the audit office. That was because you know there was, we didn't actually realise that the finance minister and the economy minister had agreed on an extension of the scheme in the executive. So what we had put forward as ministerial direction was no longer required. So all I can do is apologise for the fact that there was that degree of confusion on our part. But Colin, do you maybe want to say something about how we have centralised the, the process within the department? Sure. So. Um, what we've done is we have in, inserted my own team in, in the middle of that process at the key steps um, in a formal role as opposed to in our advisory role that we would have had before uh, so that all ministerial directions get formal sign-off from Corporate Governance Division uh, and that allows us to see and be well cited on who, is, who are the officials dealing with it and to make sure that they're, they're carrying out their responsibilities for onward notification once a direction has been given and approved. Uh, and uh, as Mike has said, that, that is working well so far this year. I think you'll find the committee is not unsympathetic. You, you, you'll remember that last year, whenever we were at the height of the COVID uh, pandemic and the pressures on the civil service, we did agree in this committee to suspend our work so rather than have permanent secretaries, including yourself, come in front of the committee and the preparation and time that was being taken to do that, uh, knowing and understanding, the appreciate, the, appreciating the pressures that there were uh, on you and your colleagues in terms of dealing with COVID and the pressures on on the economy and schemes to keep businesses uh, uh, afloat and very doors of those businesses open. So we, we're not unsympathetic to the point you're making. I haven't had any member who's indicated that they want it. Mr Muir? Dr Matthews. Yeah. Yeah, look, I appreciate this. For I think a lot of your staff, well, if not the majority of your staff, are all working from home as well. So there's challenges around that, and I think we're starting to see that when people start to come back into the workplace, the benefits of that compared to working from home and all the rest of it. So, um, I think it's just learnings and we move forward. I'm very much a person that's focused about how to be. What's the problem? How do we solve it? And how do we move forward? Far too much in Northern Ireland, we just linger on the problem. Uh, just in relation to the high street stimulus scheme, to me that stands out as one of the more, one of the most unique ministerial directions. Um, 
uh, yeah, I would say as far as probably the most unique ministerial direction that I've seen in my time, and particularly through this pandemic. Um, there's another one which was um, we were uh, touching upon earlier, which is the Loch Ness support scheme uh, around that. But um, my understanding is that that ministerial direction is for the principle of the scheme rather than for the detail of that. I just wanted to see to get that confirmation from yourself and why you felt you needed to get a ministerial direction about the principle of the scheme, never mind the details of it. Uh, it is an incredibly complex scheme and uh, there was no time to engage in what I would call due process. So, for example, you know, the executive agreed that a scheme had to be put in place. If you were to do this in a normal course of events, you would go through the construct of a normal business case and an economic appraisal, would form a view on whether it represented value for money and whether it was affordable, and then you would carry out the sort of statutory consultation processes. Um, so that's quite a, a rather lengthy process, and the executive agreed that there wasn't time to do that. So that's why we needed a ministerial direction to take forward the, the process of actually putting a scheme in place. Okay. Um, there's very clear value for money considerations around that scheme. Because a lot of these schemes were brought forward because the permanent secretary couldn't be satisfied in relation to value for money. Now, in many examples, for ourselves and for the general public, it's very clear that there is value for money around that, but there has been a process and an ability to do the economic appraisal and the business case processes around that. So, for example, one of the cases um, to me, which is very clear why it should have occurred, and I fully support the support for their ambulance, for example, but that wasn't able to go through that process. But in relation to this high street stimulus scheme, um, there is, you know, a very significant value for money in terms of the scheme, um, and the 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 value for money, you know, in terms of the distribution, there's no um, distinction made in terms of who will receive it and who won't receive it. And just have an update, just in relation to whereabouts the further ministerial direction is in relation to that, and whether we'll, whenabouts we'll get sight of that. Well, it is a very, very blunt policy intervention to give 1.4 million people, um, adults, £100 each to spend. Um, and the, the the recommendation, strong recommendation, was that the best time, the most time where you generate greatest positive impact in terms of spend, was to try and engineer it around September, October time. The retail sector thought that was when it was most beneficial, which is why we're trying to move things forward as urgently as possible in terms of the procurement process. Um, it's what I would say in, in this open format is that it, it's an incredibly complex process, and not without difficulties, um, and that we are we are liaising closely with um, Minister, the Executive, and the Economy Committee on where this goes. But you know, the. If we were to go through the normal process of business case and approvals without a ministerial direction, I, I would doubt that we would have a scheme approved by the autumn, never mind procured and delivered by the autumn. Okay, Mr. Okay, Thank you. Um, and again, I mean, we all acknowledge the extraordinary pressure departments, and especially yours, because you're in the front line of a lot of these things. I just want to understand the process. Um, should have happened and didn't happen in terms of ministerial directions. Is it the case that when a, uh, a, a policy team that is responsible for designing and providing advice on a particular, like say for, for the sake of the, the bed and breakfast, uh, or the bed and breakfast um, 
uh, guest house support scheme, there was, a, was one of the, the, the largest delays in notification. Um, do they send, um, will they send the design of the policy scheme to the permanent secretary's office and the permanent the account, US accounting officer will have to say, do, will they give you a recommendation as to whether um, a direction will be needed or do you get it as a matter of course and then take that decision yourself? Um, Obviously, you take that decision yourself, you're the accounting officer, but at what, where, where does the, where's the decision point originated, if you see what I mean? Well, I'll bring Colin in a second, but two issues to flag up. Um, so the bed and breakfast scheme um, was largely driven by our tourism folk who would have no experience, really, in, in a ministerial direction. Yeah. Okay, so they wouldn't be aware of the process, but they were, they'd be aware that they couldn't do the normal value for money judgments or affordability judgments in terms of a business case. Mm. They'd be aware that a ministerial direction was needed. Mm. So the proposals are put to me, um, and I realise that yeah, as an accounting officer, I can't stand over this and, and validate a request. The only way spend can happen is through ministerial direction, mm. which is why the minister then takes it um, to, to the executive to be endorsed. So there's an issue around awareness and experience of the individuals constructing it. Yeah. But then, it's a, there's, as I say, it, it all fed into that disjoint because you know, at that stage it wasn't joined up to, with the, the corporate governance side right. um, on Collins, who knew the process that should be in place. Um, and, and take it through to where the private office. So basically, we weren't as joined up at that stage right. as we should have been in terms of internal communications and what a ministerial direction actually yeah. meant. Colin, do you maybe want to elaborate? Yeah, so uh, uh, I hesitate to use the phrase in normal times, but in normal times uh, when a direction might be contemplated, you typically would have had a prolonged period of discussion between officials and minister developing the, the policy and the, and the broad intent. Uh, and in those circumstances, there would be plenty of time for. Um, First of all, for the normal value for money considerations to be done, because uh, our objective would always be to be able to present Minister with value for money options that are compliant with managing public money in full. Uh, but uh, with the pace of, of COVID interventions in particular, knowing that Mike and, and the Minister were having regular discussions about how things were developing and likely timelines, um, generally for these cases we would arrive at the point of the, the scheme design knowing that there wasn't going to be time to do those normal uh, the normal business cases and so on, and therefore knowing that the only way this was ever going to go through in the time frame envisaged was via direction. Um, so it, it wasn't a, it wasn't the normal the, the normal to and fro and exchange of views so in that sense. Almost assumed at the beginning that, that that a direction was going to have to be issued because this was happening so quickly. Yes. But there should have been a point of communication from the permanent secretary's office or corporate governance to should that would that have been. To say it's now my responsibility to obviously there, there's an exchange of letters between yourself and the minister, but then there there should also have been a moment which is right now the next part is yes. we need to write a letter to CNAG, but also I think the Department of Finance. Yes. Yeah, so Wait, did that happen, or was it just the CNAG who was? Yeah. So the the direction has to be approved either by the Minister of Finance or the executive, yeah. and that, that was done in every case. Um, and then after that, once it's all through and approved, that's the point at which we're required to notify the CNAG. And that's and we dropped it was that off. point where some officials uh, weren't just as familiar with the process okay. um, and, and omitted to check, uh, and we didn't have a, a sufficient visibility to pick those up in time. So, so is, the, is the thing that will happen now that there's a, a, a filtration process that where corporate governance will say, will ensure that a quality control thing will happen where, as it... As at some point in the process, is the beginning of the process or the end, where you say, "Remember, this has to be notified." Yeah, exactly. So um, that the responsibility for doing that uh, in the guidance that existed at the time lay with the business areas, 
but uh, as Mike has said, not everybody was familiar with that. Directions are a fairly, or certainly were a fairly uncommon thing, uh, and people may not have had uh, cause to be familiar with that guidance in advance. Not to say it should still have happened, obviously. Okay. Can I just ask on the, to go back to the, um, the, the the stimulus, the high street voucher stimulus scheme? Are you now that you've got so there's an initial relatively, obviously lots of directions. The volume is unusual. But as Andrew Muir said, the, the nature of the direction sought for a high voucher scheme was in itself relatively unusual because it was a relatively early stage of the process. Are you, uh, is your belief that that will kind of cover you for the rest of the process, or that do you ex anticipate needing a further direction? Not, you, you might, but is, it, is there a world in which you may need a further direction? There is. There are a couple of scenarios we may see further ministerial directions needed. I'm treading delicately here, Chair, because there are quite sensitive commercial and legal issues. At no, and, so, and, and, and don't sorry. allow members to push in. Yeah, no, so, uh, but I can see scenarios where that may okay. be the case. Okay. Thank you, uh, Mr. Beggs. Um, just to follow up um, the issue of the speed of design of uh, these schemes and uh, how, how busy everybody was uh, in, in developing them and that the uh, notification process w was overlooked. Uh, Mr. Brennan, these, these are multi-million pound schemes. Are you not aware or do your uh, staff not advise you of multi-million pound schemes that are progressing? That wasn't the issue at play here. Um, so as we've just discussed, the process in terms of the scheme being constructed agreed in the executive, the minister asking for the executive's endorsement or the finance minister's endorsement, all those steps were adhered to. So I was fully aware of the construct of the scheme. I was fully aware of how the scheme was being presented to the executive and what the executive was agreeing to. What, where, where we went wrong was after the executive had agreed the scheme, so therefore how, after they had agreed the financial allocations to the scheme, where we went wrong or rather where, where we weren't as speedy as we should have been was and then the it was the final step which was formally notifying the CNAG. So the issue about knowing about the cost wasn't an issue. Okay. So so they were they're they're actually approved at the executive level rather than um, departmental levels. Should it not then have fallen on the executive office permanent secretary to notify CNAG? No, because it's the, the relevant departmental accounting officer that submits the ministerial direction. So in DFE's case, there were 15 ministerial directions in the course of the year that were notified, but there were other departments as well during the course of last year that had schemes. You know, TEU, I think, had one in relation to travel agents. Um, infrastructure had some, health had some. They all go from the departmental accounting officer. So you know, the, the economy minister made 15 ministerial direction requests to either the finance minister or the executive. Similarly, you know, the health minister did the same, the infrastructure minister did the same. It's not for TEO to take ownership of them. Okay, but it was just the fact that they were approved by the executive rather than um, signed off by the um, economy minister. That, that was the, the point I was, was trying to highlight. No, no, it's the, and actually the money comes through DFA as a department for these, these directions, so it's where the money flows through. That's the relevant accounting officer that has to take responsibility. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, members. Um, Mr Donnelly, have you any comment you want to make? Uh, no, nothing to add. Okay, Mr Stevenson, have you any comment you want to make? 
Uh, yes, Chair, just, just briefly, just want to say that the, the work that's been done on ministerial directions has been very significant in, in recent months and uh, some very good collaboration, I think, between ourselves and finance, our colleagues in the audit office and the departments in terms of um, addressing these issues. And uh, I know we've, we've issued guidance on this piece, which I think has helped. But certainly moving forward, we're continuing to engage with the audit office and the, 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 the timely notification, uh, we intend to produce further guidance uh, to, to push departments in, in that area. But um, I think much good work has been done, certainly uh, in the economy department. And the comments of Mr. Brown and Mr. Woods are very helpful today. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Woods, that's you finished. Thank you very much, you, in particular, Mr. Brennan, for coming in front of us today. Thank you. Three sessions. Um, you, you, we very much appreciate thank you, that. Members, that concludes our evidence session for today. Mr. Stevenson, thank you for attending, and I'm content now you can leave the, the meeting. Members, we will have another short adjournment to allow the, the room to be reset for the next item on the agenda. Okay, so we now just go uh, into suspension for a few moments. Programme signed. Okay, order, um, uh, members, um, uh, as you have seen, the actual chair of the Public Accounts Committee has um, uh, had to step out, so uh, I'm stepping in. Um, uh, the uh, members, we will now go into open session to, to consider four ministerial uh, directions. Um, can we please bring in Mr. Uh, Neil Gray, uh, Director, Northern Ireland Audit Office? Can you be brought on the spotlight? I, Neil. Um, so, um, Neil, can I ask you to uh, talk us through the ministerial directions? Mr. Chairman, just to, to start with, can I declare an interest in that my dad has about 70 uh, sheep? I see there's a world uh, producers uh, scheme in, in, in discussion. Okay, do any other members wish to declare an interest or have any other relevant comments to me? No sheep. Very sheep. <laughs> no sheep. Very good. Uh, um, Neil, can I turn to you to, to give us a briefing on the ministerial directions in question? Thank you, Chair. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Hi. Um, you have four ministerial directions in front of you from DERA. Um, none of them in themselves are particularly outlandish or unusual. They cover um, a variety of situations, two of which are directly related to COVID and two of which are probably more, more peripherally related to COVID, but nevertheless, COVID has an influence. There's not very much to bring to the committee's attention here that's particularly unusual, but I must highlight that the committee will not have seen the original request from the accounting officer to the minister for the payments in relation to Lotnay Fisherman. The department has considerable sensitivities over the long and tangled legal history as to who's entitled to fish on the loch. And I believe that's what lies behind the department's reluctance to furnish the committee with that letter uh, apparently, it does contain matters that they would wish to keep under legal privilege. Okay. 
That said, I don't think there's anything more that I need to say. Obviously, I'm quite happy to answer any questions. Okay, thanks, Neil. What I should do, I realise I've omitted to, to do with the proper procedurals and introduce the, the, the agenda item proper, so I will do that now. This is agenda item na, uh, nine. Um, uh, Neil, thank you for giving us that uh, slightly um, uh, precipitous uh, intro, helpful though it was. I should have uh, introduced it properly. Members, I refer you to um, correspondence we've been copied into dated 9th of June um, 2021 at pages uh, 179 to 180 uh, of your pack from Mr. Andy Monaghan, uh, Departmental Assembly Liaison Officer. Uh, to um, uh, the Department of Finance, to Mr. Peter McCallion, Chair of the Finance Committee, regarding uh, clarity on the latest on the list of ministerial uh, directions. Uh, members, Mr. Monon has highlighted to the Finance Committee that rather than uh, hold up the publication of the ministerial directions, it was decided to publish an interim list in May 2021, which excluded those not yet discussed by the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, the full list will be published as soon as this committee has had a chance to discuss those which remain outstanding. Uh, Mr. Monon has also stated that the list will be updated and published on a regular basis. Um, are we content to note, members? No. Yes, content. Okay. No dissenting voices. Uh, in that case, um, uh, we will proceed now uh, properly into the, the discussion of the ministerial directions, which I've already uh, asked uh, Neil to, um, to dive into in a slightly improvisational way, but let's do it properly and formally now. Uh, members, I refer you to correspondence from Mr. Kieran Donnelly, CB, CNAG, dated 10th of June 2021. Uh, and correspondence dated 23rd of April 2021 um, to the CNAG from Mr. Dennis uh, McMahon, uh, Accounting Officer, DERA, at pages uh, 181 to 183 of your table pack. Um, the Ministerial Direction is to provide short-term support for the, uh, for the impact of COVID-19 on Loch Ness inland uh, fishermen. Uh, members, you should note that the documentation does not include the Permanent Secretary's submission to the DERA Minister. Uh, the department is refusing to submit this to uh, the committee, citing legal privilege. Uh, inland fishermen in um, Loch Ness occur incurred losses as a result of not being able to fish uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic during 2020. Eligibility criteria proposed by DERA officials included the requirement for a DERA license and a fishing permit or evidence of permission to fish from the fishery owner. The ministerial direction on 27 January 2021 removed the requirement of permission to fish from the fishery owner due to ownership of fishing rights at Loch Ness being a contentious and disputed issue. Uh, the Department estimates that the total cost will be £198,000. Uh, members, the relevant um, papers on the approval of this scheme are at pages 184 to 185 of your pack. And I turn now to the Controller and Auditor General in proper order to ask if he has any comments. I think you've covered all the points, Chair. Uh, there's nothing there. I need to add. Okay. Uh, would any members like to make any comment? Yeah. Andrew Muir. Thank you, uh, Chair. Um, just in relation to the funding of the Loch Ness COVID support scheme, it does say that the submission uh, from the Permanent Secretary wasn't uh, included with the committee. It's whether you've had sight of that or whether that was uh, No, it's, uh, that's a good question. We haven't had sight of it either. So, um, And then I'd be the conduit to bring it to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can understand the context behind that, but I think for the role of yourself, the CNAG and the Audit Office, to be able to scrutinise what our ministerial directions are meant to be unusual um, um, because of the clear circumstances arising from when they're granted, the fact that you're not going to have access to that information to be able to analyse this ministerial direction strikes me as concerning. I understand the issue about legal privilege, but whether 
why you as CNIG, as a you know the auditor for Northern Ireland, can't have access to that information? Uh, over the years, I've seen many documents with legal privilege, uh, but uh, when I do, I would treat them sensitively. Yes. So uh, there have been occasions in the past where I would have received probably documentation I wouldn't have fully shared with the committee because of for that reason. So you raise a good point. Uh, I, I, so, so I will push this with uh, the Permanent Secretary. It's more a point of principle. Yes. Uh, there's no big issue as regards the direction itself. It's almost a bit of subtext. But uh, the last time the committee had a, an issue like this was on your session on uh, this legal opinion on uh, the MOT contract. Where again, um, information or documentation wasn't fully fully shared. Uh, so um, now that legal people take the view that their their advice is uh, for the recipient of the advice, uh, but uh, there are occasions when the public interest will trump that. I don't think this is one of those occasions. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, it's more a point of principle. Yeah. I think maybe. And express my own disappointment that this hasn't been shared with the CMAG. I don't know why we go back to the department uh -huh. and express that as well, but I think this is a point of principle and it's quite important. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, I think that's a fair comment, and, I, and um, uh, if it's in order, I would suggest uh, um, that we, uh, that the chair, thinks about writing to the uh, to the department and express our um, concern at that. Unless members are content with that. Agreed. Uh, any other members want to make any comment about the Loch direction? Anyone on Starleaf? No. Okay, um, we'll move on. Um, members, I refer you to correspondence from Mr. Kieran Donnelly, CB, uh, CNAG, dated 10th of June 2021, um, uh, and correspondence dated 23rd of April 2021 to the CNAG from Mr. Dennis McMahon. Um, at pages uh, 186 to 189 of your table pack, um, it is uh, your table pack re regarding a ministerial direction. The ministerial, the, um, the ministerial direction will make payments to um, CAFRA students to address to address digital poverty due to uh, COVID-19 disruption. For support payments of 60 pounds will be paid uh, to full-time and part-time higher education, further education students. The estimated total cost is projected to be approximately 100,000. Um, payments for the scheme are to be met within the departmental COVID-19 budget for 2020-21. The relevant papers make it clear that the Department of Finance Minister uh, approved this proposal on 16th of April and are pages 190 to 192. Um, does the CNAG have any comments on this? Uh, no, uh, in money terms, this is a, a relatively small one, uh, but um, I suppose I the as the Department of Economy accounting officer said on an earlier one, uh, some of these are quite blunt instruments, so this is related to digital poverty. It doesn't mean that every student is suffering digital po poverty, but in the time available, uh, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to, to target uh, a scheme at uh, those who might need it most. So I can understand the thinking behind the, the direction. Uh, do any members have any comments? I, I, I had just one question, which is that um, this is—is um, is this unique? I think this is unique to 
CAFRA students, I don't think further education students generally have received um, payments of this sort. Uh, Neil, can you any further information on that? Uh, we can check that out, Chair, and come back to you. Um, Certainly, I'm unaware of any other such payments, CNAJ. I'm not suggesting that's, that it's the wrong thing to do. It's just a, an interesting, interesting to note that it's a, it's obviously a relatively small cohort of people who are students in this, who are affected by this. But it, um, it doesn't seem to, it hasn't been matched by other um, uh, HE, uh, other HE, other HE and FE students. Um, okay. If members, if no other members have comments, uh, I take it we are content on this. Uh, so we move on. Uh, members, I refer you to correspondence from Karen Donnelly, uh, CBCNAG, dated 10th June 2021, uh, uh, and correspondence dated 23rd of April 2021 uh, to the CNAG from Mr. Dennis McMahon, um, uh, Accounting Officer Dara, at pages 193 to 195 of your table pack regarding ministerial direction. The uh, ministerial direction will make payments uh, under a COVID-19 support for wool producers scheme. Uh, support payments of uh, 1.40 per U to be made to farm businesses uh, with, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I should be saying you or you, I think my grandfather would probably be disappointed in me saying you, but uh, to be made to farm businesses with the uh, uh, department uh, identifying eligible, number, uh, eligible numbers of U's from the uh, animal and uh, public health information system. Uh, the estimated total cost is projected to be approximately uh, 1.265 million, with eligible farm businesses receiving on average £130. Uh, members, payments for the scheme are to be met within the departmental COVID-19 budget for 2021. The relevant papers make it clear that the Department of Finance Minister approved this proposal on 16 April uh, 2021 and are at pages 196 to 198. Um, does the CNAG have any comments? Uh, nothing to add, Chair, on that one. Okay. Any members like to make a comment at this stage on this direction? No. In that case, uh, members are content. Um, that is good. Um, we now move on to uh, a further direction support scheme for impacted flooding in the Glenelg and uh, Owen Kalu uh, River catchment areas. Members, I refer you to correspondence from uh, Kieran Donnelly, CBCNAG, dated 10th of April, 10th of June, sorry, 2021, and correspondence dated 23rd of April. 2021 from Mr. Dennis McMahon, uh, Accounting Officer Dara, at pages uh, 199 to 202 of your table pack uh, regarding a ministerial direction that has been sought. Uh, the attached ministerial direction will provide support to farmers uh, under the impact uh, for, for farmers under the impact uh, uh, of flooding in the Glenelg and Owen Killy uh, River catchment areas. Uh, farmers in these areas incurred losses as a result of flood damage in August 2017. A methodology for determining the level of funding per farm business capped at 106k is included in the ministerial direction on the 31st of March uh, 2021. Uh, 31st of March 2021. The department estimates that the total cost will be 3.45 million to be met within the 2020-21 budget. Members, the relevant letter makes clear that the Department of Finance Minister approved this uh, proposal on 20th April 21 and are at pages uh, 205 to 207. Um, does the Comptroller and Order General have any comments? Uh, so, some of you, Chair, may remember there was very serious flooding mm -hmm. uh, in the Glenelg Valley back in '17. It's quite interesting this is only coming to fruition yeah. now, so so many years later. Uh, but I think it is what it is, uh, and it's uh, it's compensation for both income foregone and 
also the need to, I suppose, rebuild fences and uh, bring land back to order. Uh, Neil, is there anything else you want to add to that? Sorry, Chair. Sorry, uh, Mr. McKee. Some pretty straightforward. Okay, uh, we can go to. It's a very straightforward case. Okay, Mr. McHugh. Yes, uh, Chair Gormagat. Uh, having visited the Glenelly Valley at that time and uh, see the, the destruction, uh, where it was actually described as a moon landscape uh, by some observers, uh, I would welcome uh, this payment now being made to the residents not in the Glenelly Valley as a result of the own kill you. Uh, having uh, caused so much damage, uh, and it is long overdue. So that's uh, a very, very welcome payment to those people in, in that area. Okay, thank you, Mr. McHugh. I see um, uh, Mr. Beggs has his hand up too. Um, Roy, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, yeah I, I too saw the the TV reports at that time. Considerable boulders, and on uh, I think it was perhaps even silage fields, uh, and they they were then. Uh, discussion over uh, perhaps even getting the, the waste moved away and the huge costs involved. But my question is, was there any explanation for the huge variety of uh, the huge difference between the two grants, depending on the ground? I'm just trying to understand how uh, those costs came into being. Uh, no, we wasn't uh, probed into that level of detail, Mr. Beggs, but um, we're very happy to look further into it. At this stage, of course, we're just uh, notifying you of the direction. Uh, we can drill further in when we do the audit. Okay, thank you. Thanks, uh, Mr. Beggs. I had a, a question, which is simply: Do, do we know why it's t taken so long to, to 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 make this payment? Obviously, we've been go going through lots of directions relating to COVID-19, including the previous three, and so it's in a set given that it's the, the same departments. Uh, it's surprising. possible with the assembly being down for during the earlier part of the period, it could be an explanation for it. So uh, I'll make inquiries into that as well. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Um, do any other members have any comments uh, in that direction? Uh, in that case, uh, if we are content, we will uh, move on and uh, we will now go into closed session for the um, remainder of the meeting. Can we please uh, bring in Mr. Patrick Barr? Director and Mr. Brian O'Neill, Senior Auditor, Northern Ireland Audit Office. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. <laughs>